Hello and welcome to Creating a Common Language for Event Design with Rude Jensen, this episode of the Event Manager Podcast. Rude Jensen is the founder and managing partner of the Event Design Collective. On this episode, we talk about why designing time is essential to event design. We talk about how music and business models inspired the event canvas methodology. We talk about how a common frustration led to a side project that led to a thriving startup. We talk about how structure enables language that powers conversations about event design. We talk about the many challenges of planning for behavior change, and we talk about why successful events may still benefit from design thinking. We also talk about how restrictions can aid event design and why creating multiple event design prototypes has many advantages. And we end by talking about what the future holds for event design and particularly for the event design collective. I hope you enjoy this podcast and don't forget to subscribe to it and leave a review and even a comment if you like wherever you get your podcasts. Now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello, welcome to the Event Manager Podcast. I'm Miguel Neves, the Editor-in-Chief of EventMB. I'm joined by our Deputy Editor, Dylan Monarchio, and our guest today is Rude Jensen. Rude, thank you for joining us today. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. As always, thank you, Dylan and Miguel, for hosting the show and inviting us. It's our pleasure. It's very welcome. So you are the founding and founder and managing partner at Event Design Collective, but I wanted to start by picking on one of your LinkedIn titles. You have a few things on your LinkedIn bio. It says designer of time. What's that about? And why does that come first? <laughs> time is our most precious commodity, Miguel. And so um, to use uh, something I just learned from my brother two weeks ago, he said, it's better to regret the things you did than the things that you didn't do. Um, and I think this ties in really nicely with the design of time, right? I know that Joe Pine and Jim Gilmore wrote this uh, up quite some time back and I added this concept of, of time and time design. And I really like that time factor as the, um, as the value currency. It's so much more representative than Bitcoin or Euro or dollars to quantify the amount of time that you have from an audience or from participants or from whoever, you know, your, your listeners here on the podcast. Time is the most precious commodity. So if you can design time, I think it's one of the critical skills we need. I like that. So you're kind of, yeah, you're not trying to design to, to for, for profit necessarily, but if you can give people time or, or make the best use of their time, then you're doing something right. Yeah. People want to spend time with you. That's usually a good sign. That's a good sign. Well, thank you for spending time with us today and with our, with our listeners and whoever's downloading the podcast. Great. Um, so, I mean, 
event design collective event design canvas take us through that a little bit just succinctly what is it uh and if you can i'm, I'm i know you have some props and things we're just recording the audio for this but if you could give us an audio <laughs> explanation of what it is um i think that would be really interesting absolutely so the event canvas and this is a definition that in our new book we've also reiterated in its shortest form i'll read that to you okay. uh, it's a visual thinking tool on a single piece of paper that allows people to articulate how an event creates value so it was developed by Rolf Rissen and myself uh, we published it under creative commons uh, it's been translated into 16 or 17 different languages but basically it's a mental model to allow you to articulate how events create value and and why did you kind of find there was a need for this what was what were you trying to solve that you felt that this model helped with okay so maybe back to the design of time i'm sure you miguel and dylan and most of your listeners can remember many events that were phenomenal that they attended but they're also probably aching for the time they spent at mediocre events or poor events because the time suck of events is pretty significant on the planet. Um, instead of complaining about mediocre or poor events, you can decide to do something different, which is to do something about that. And that's the reason why we created the event canvas is to have a language, a common language that people can use as a team to design how the time is spent at events by the various stakeholders that come to that event. And by thinking of it ahead of time, by applying design thinking, and then being able to frame it on a single piece of paper, it allows everyone to get on the same page. So that's the reason why we did that. It probably was inspired by many different things, but um, one of them is music. Miguel, you're a musician. You know, you can play fantastic music without mu sheet music. But if you want to scale what you do, or if you want to transport things that you do over time, or in different places, then you need to write down somehow what it is that's supposed to happen. And music is this kind of universal language that people write, you know, just a little dots and dashes and, you know, beats and bars and, you know, a number of lines on a piece of paper. It's a very visual representation of what it is that you're supposed to do. Now, will it sound exactly the same when two different musicians played in two different parts of the world, maybe even using two different instruments? It might not. But the story and the intent of what it tells is really what's being transplanted onto the paper in order to then be able to be replicated at either another time or another place or by another set of people. And I think this was very inspiring. The other thing that inspired us was the business model canvas that we ran into. I first ran into it in 2010 when I was on the International Board of MPI in Vancouver at the World Education Congress. And we came across one of the first iterations that Alex Osterwalder made which we use in practice to look at the business model of chapters and study that closer and how businesses create value. And that was very inspirational because if you look at an event as a short term business, a very short business, like maybe a couple of days, a couple of hours, maybe, maybe a couple of weeks, uh, a lot of that can be used. But also we found that the dynamics of value creation of events is quite different and hence after visiting his event in 2013 called the Business Design Summit, uh, when Rul and I had been thinking about this for quite some time already, we were inspired to um, to put our model in front of his team um, and they pulled the arms and legs out of it just in the way that we had, you know, critically looked at the experience of visiting his event 
which he was particularly nervous about because he had 250 of his most heavy users as well as his peers at the event, right? So the stakes are high and then people pay attention to how you spend their time. Maybe. I'm really curious. You mentioned, you mentioned that, um, you know, you kind of referenced sheet music as a way to create a formula or, 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 a a system for being able to reproduce events from place to place, but also as a way to ascribe a language to the process of, the, of, uh, to, to, to kind of create a language around the process of designing events. What do you think was missing from the vocabulary that the canvas was able to add to the mix, uh, apart from just sort of standardizing through creating a, a formula? Yeah, so I think it's interesting because um, you never start out by thinking that a language is missing, right? Or that a vocabulary is missing. You start by seeing the frustration in the eye of the event owner that's trying to express what it is that they're trying to do and having a really hard time transitioning that from their prefrontal cortex and their brain through their mouth and articulating it to their team or to the people that they want to inspire to go and create that event. And somehow I've seen that look in the in the eyes of many event owner over many years, but I've never found a way of really decoding the problem or creating a, a way in which you can equip the team and the event owner to, um, to talk about how their event creates value. And by maybe redefining how you talk about value creation, and by boxing it up into 14 boxes, into three steps, into something that's very methodological, this allows the teams to get a grip on talking about who has a stake in the event and then how it creates value um, and what that looks like in time, right? Because if you, if you can then decode that and know how to compose, that's a very powerful skill to have. Um, so, I, so there weren't really verbs missing what i did see is the repetitive syndrome of people asking you know something that they teach you in many event management courses is what is the objective of the event right and then we have a big red button that goes right wrong question because any event owner cannot answer that question an event does not have an objective it's an inanimate object the stakeholders that go to an event have behavior changes they want to um uh, to, to go from an entry to an exit behavior and something needs to happen in the middle. So if you start talking about these things in a different language, all of a sudden you can redefine how that's done and you allow a team to talk about it sensibly without a lot of blah, blah. So I think, I think it's really interesting that, you know, the, the, the canvas, you're saying the canvas allows people to structure their thinking around an event. Uh, which I think makes a lot of sense. And um, it's, I like to say, it's not rocket science, but it is quite complex to put on an event when you have different stakeholders and different things happening. So, um, but what I also hear you say is it it behaves like sheet music in the sense that if you're trained, I assume, and you look at a plan created on a, a, an event uh, canvas, then someone else who's trained can quickly look at it and I guess not play along, but understand what's happening and see what's good, what's bad, or kind of almost kind of imagine the event taking place based on what they're seeing. Is that what, what you're saying? 
Yeah. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I've learned is that if you cannot see what it's supposed to look like, you can't really make it happen systematically, right? So mm -hmm. let me give you this example. Last week, I spent a week in Arosa in the Swiss Alps playing Alphorn with my dad and 47 other Alphorn players. Now, the Alphorn only has 16 notes, one six, right? It's very few. As a guitar player, Miguel, you know that you know you had a choice of chromatics and multiple scales and, and you know multiple um, octaves. That's very limited. The interesting thing about every note is that it has a natural resonance. And so, if you cannot picture and hear the sound of the note that you want to produce in your head before blowing into the horn, the note will not come out properly the other end of the three meter and twenty piece of wood. Which means that if you have 47 people doing that and you have a composition in three kind of, you know, in the first, a second and a third voice that together orchestrate sound with natural resonances, uh, everybody in that group has to be able to like, even when you read the music, you have to kind of hear the sound in your head and you have to picture what the sound, you know, what it sounds like when it's finished and all of the elements are together. Now, at first, it's really hard to do that just for your horn in your, in your tone of voice, right? So in, in, in like, Let's say you play the bass and you have to picture the notes and you have to play them in the right order and sequence in the right duration with the right breaks in between. That's one difficulty level. Second one is when you add a second voice or a third voice, or then you have the person that composes the music or the person that directs the group of people that interpret the notes that are written on the piece of paper. And I think this is exactly like you said, Miguel, you can make phenomenal music without sheet music. And people have done so for many ages. And there's fantastic events that get you know, made and delivered without ever looking at an event canvas or even knowing that it exists. But if you want to do it systematically and replicably and be able to read and see what the future can look like in time, this is one tool that you can use to kind of picture that and picture a future state because that's the one unique trait that we have as humans is you know, our prefrontal cortexes can imagine what happens in the future, if I do this now, then that will be the likely result. And as a group of people, if you orchestrate that properly, groups of people can change behavior in desired direction of change, providing you have the right triggers and experiences lined up to convert into an instructional design that then delivers that respective learning, right? And I think this is, yeah, it, it might sound complex, but it's actually super simple. But like most things in, in, li in life, you know, making something simple is not easy. But you have to like you have to really roll yourself in the problem first, and this is the whole you know aspect of design thinking. You have to fall in love with the problem first before you try to come up with solutions or prototypes. And so we spend a lot of time in the problem ahead of time, asking a lot of questions systematically. Right in three steps. So first, we try to figure out who's it for, who are the stakeholders, because every stakeholder might have a different need, and you need to focus on just one at a time, because it's impossible to do like multiple stakeholders in your head at the same time. It becomes spaghetti very quickly. Then what you figure out is what's the change, like what's the behavior change you're looking for? What are they expecting? What are the pains? You know, what are the gains? What are the levels of satisfaction when they walk away from the event? And what's the entry and exit behaviors? So the change is like one of the core things. But just having the change doesn't give you enough. You need the second part, which is the frame, which is all the design restrictions. Let's say there's budgetary restrictions or time restrictions or 
uh, you know, jobs to be done or promises. There's all sorts of things that you put into uh, six different cubicles. Um, and all of these cubicles take about a minute to two for a team of people to come up with the answers, which you then validate with the stakeholders. And then the last part, once you have the change in the frame, is the prototype. Because people have tons of ideas about what they could do with their event. Oh, let's use this platform or let's do this or let's do that, right? So there's never a shortage of ideas, mm -hmm. but there's a dramatic fail in most event. I don't like to use the word, but let me use it for once just for the sake of illustration. Brainstorms, right? Where people regurgitate ideas that they've seen elsewhere or create their own, but then don't have a filter to assess whether an idea is good or bad. And to us, the change in the frame, which we call the delta, right? The change of behavior. There's usually only two or three things that people need to get from an event. And that's the filter you look through to identify whether an idea is good or bad and whether it fits in the beginning of the event or in the end of the event or before the event or after the event or in the middle of the event. And then you string those together into a prototype. And that's the hour piece, the hourglass that's in the middle of the canvas. That's the time you spend at the event. And that's the experience journey and the instructional design, which for a reason looks like an hourglass, right? It's the design of time. Interesting. Could you expand a little bit on how you kind of test this with the stakeholders or how you um, sense check this? Because I, I, I get the feeling you could come up with a million different ideas and assumptions about what stakeholders are looking for. And, and I like what you're talking about in terms of change or behavior change. But I, I also have this feeling that I don't know how many people go to events or went to in-person events with the desire for behavior change. I think a lot of people have a, a kind of no pattern that they yeah. do, right? They just kind of show up and there's events that they go to. But how do you then sense check this with the stakeholders? Yeah, Good, great question. Um, and at first, this was, this was kind of where we stumbled in our first design of the event canvas, I guess, is because when you empathize with a group of people on behalf of someone else, how do you know that you're right or wrong? What we found is that if you have a group of, let's say, seven people with diverse backgrounds, with diverse educations, with diverse levels of experience, um, whatever it might be, um, and you get them to think together, the power of their knowledge is not just the addition of the seven, but it's exponential, right? So the accuracy of what comes out is much higher. It still might be only 80% correct. What we benefit from is the fact that all of our brains are hardwired to spot the 10 differences. So if I ask you, Miguel, you know, what behavior change would you like to see as a result of doing this podcast today with me and Dylan, you might stumble and go, uh, blah, 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 I don't know, right? Or it's hard to articulate at first. But if uh, Dylan and I and five other people would sit down for an hour and go through a pre-event empathy map, post-event empathy map, frame the problem, articulate three post-its of behavior changes that we think that you want from this podcast, and we hold that up against you in a one-minute video in which we tell that story, your brain is hardwired to spot the 10 difference between what you didn't know you wanted, but now you see an example of what it could be and what you really want, right? So this is what we call stakeholder validation. Whenever we do a piece of work, we summarize it in one minute videos. We send that video to the stakeholder, a number of them, not just one. They critique it or fine tune it because they go, oh, it's really good you thought of that. And this is great. And I, I, 
I didn't think of this, but this is very important to me, right? But you mess this thing and this thing. So they will fill in the blanks for you. And then your accuracy level goes up dramatically. It still might not be 100% because you're looking at a small sample group of people from that total group. But this is how you get much closer to the truth without having the workload on the shoulders of your stakeholder, but on the, on, on the empathy powers of the team that's designing. And this is where you, the, if the design team spends 1% of the total event time, that's kind of the formula we use. So let's say your event has 100 people going to it for five hours. That's 500 man hours, women hours. You divide it by- Human hours or hours. Human hours, yeah. yeah. Um, you divide it by 100 to get the 1%, right? So would it make sense to spend five hours in a small design team together to think about how to spend the 500 human hours of those people going to that event and not wasting one minute of it? And I think anybody in their right mind wouldn't want to take the risk not to do it um, because events are, you know, they build your reputation, your brand, uh, they cost tons of money. They're extremely effective in terms of changing behavior, but if it just ends up somewhere else instead of in the desired direction of change, it's a double-edged sword. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. So I'm curious about the Event Canvas methodology. It sounds complete. It sounds uh, complex in some senses, but also uh, uncomplicated, or it helps you get to simple where you want to get to towards you know when you use it. Um, does it really apply to any type of event, or you know, are there events that? don't work for, for with it or, or they're too complicated or do you find that it works across the board? Um, we have yet to come across an event where it doesn't work. Uh, so we love a good challenge. If somebody thinks they, their event is not suited for this, let us know. We're happy to kind of take on that challenge. Uh, we have come across the fact that, you know, our definition of an event is something people often ask. Right. And this it's, it's also written up in our book, but for us to, to us, an event is any gathering of two or more stakeholders that changes behavior, mm -hmm. even if it's not in the desired direction of change, right? It's, it would still be an event. So it's a very broad definition. Wouldn't that also include kind of a night out and other Anything. things where people get Anything. together? Okay. I, was going to, I was going to say, surely that definition also includes events that are too simple or small enough that it wouldn't merit spending five hours trying to figure out how each stakeholder's behavior could be improved yeah. <laughs> or changed. But Dylan, Dylan, let me, let me challenge that thinking because 1% of the total event time, let's say if Rul and I go into a, into a conversation with um, somebody that wants to have event design or might not want to have it, but wants to have a conversation with us. If that conversation is one hour, let's say it's planned for that. If we just sit in the car and go to that meeting, you know, in the good old days when we would still go to face-to-face -face meetings, uh, 
um, or even when we do them online on Zoom, we tend to spend 1% asking our, each other, what is the desired exit behavior for us and for the other stakeholder? So we kind of set a, a perimeter of when are we, what's our expectation of that one conversation? What's the iteration of change we can expect from spending one hour with that person? And then we kind of write that down or anchor it in our memory so that afterwards, when we drive back and we have the same conversation and we ask ourselves, how did that go, right? Um, our expectations were set before we actually had the conversation because if it went really well, afterwards you're going to think, oh, we could have done much better, right? Or you then relate it to what you thought and expected before the event. And that's almost like a micro event design just for that one hour conversation. But aren't there events that... Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, aren't there events that are so formulaic that planners have done, you know, 100 of already, the same stakeholders derive a lot of value from them, and they've kind of nailed the process down. So surely there are events that are templated enough for, for which there's enough of a precedent that it doesn't really merit, like revisiting the event design from a high level perspective in order to be able to assess the stakeholder you know, takeaways or the ROI for every individual stakeholder and then go through the process of contacting them and setting the benchmark. And, you know, like surely there are some events for some planning teams that for which it doesn't really make sense because they've already done this event 50 times and they know what mm -hmm. to expect out of it. Yeah. And I like, I like the Dutchness of your question, Dylan. Uh, it's a very direct question. <laughs> well, <but laughs> I'm originally Dutch, but I live in Switzerland, so I'll give you the neutral answer. Um, okay. Yes, and that is part of the epidemic that our industry is faced with. And that's a two-edged sword. One, if you keep doing what you did, did before and expect the same results, it's the definition of insanity, right? What so, if you want the same results? What if you're happy with those results and that's why you keep doing that event? <laughs> yeah, let me, bring, in, let me bring, in, bring back in the pandemic. So we never operate in a vacuum. Right? We operate in a context and the context keeps changing. Your stakeholders keep changing. What I'm not saying is that you should repeat all of these stakeholder analysis every single time you do an event, although it's a great way to get the team on the same page and to understand what it is that they're working on right? and how to create the story and be part of the creation of it so that you own it. But more often than not, and all of us have experienced that in the past two years, is that circumstances change to such a degree that if you haven't thought about this before and you start thinking about it when the situation has changed, then you're too late. And you could see the difference between the events that were really quick at adapting and changing and uh, morphing and rethinking, going back to the blueprints of what they originally designed for to what they were going to deliver in that future state. Um, and they could very easily look at what is the newest set of restrictions, for instance, during a pandemic era, uh, era uh, and how do I then adjust to deliver the same type of behavior change in a new context? And I think this is what is so interesting about the design of time, is that time and again, the environment changes and your stakeholders change too. If you think they're static, then you're not paying attention close enough. I suppose that's true. I mean. <laughs> that's that's kind of a perfect argument for being able to, or for, for the impetus of uh, reassessing your value and how you plan to spend time, especially in an unfamiliar format. 
When you're in an unfamiliar format, I imagine that a lot of the factors that you're used to uh, having as sort of the second stage limitations on your design potential are unknown. So how do you how do you how do you compensate for the fact that you don't really necessarily have a full grasp of all of your limitations when you're trying to define your time design vis-a-vis stakeholder interests? So this is where the multiple prototypes come out or where you can add restrictions to your frame as they come up, right? So you could have three prototypes saying countries in lockdown, countries not in lockdown, countries in semi-lockdown, right? Um, and those three frames would then, with the same set of ideas that you had before, might give very different prototypes as to how you could deliver that behavior change. So instead of thinking about restrictions of tech platforms or restrictions of um, geographies that you visit or whatever it might be that you have fixed already, the most important thing to think about, I think, is the behaviors that people demonstrate as a result of the choices you make. And those are the hard things to predict, right? Because we didn't know how people would behave if they were locked up in their home office for 14 months. What does that do to the behavior of people? That's the big unknown, right? Who would have known that an audio platform like Clubhouse would thrive for 14 months and wonder what's happening to it now? So the interesting thing is that tech developments always are delayed by a certain latency after people change their behavior because it's people that build them. Right? So that's always very interesting. Um, if you can design for what it could be and have multiple prototypes on the table, you can freeze them and unfreeze them when you need them. Well, but it's surely, not as good as the fresh vegetable, but it's pretty close. I, I guess that's true. Um, so then it, what's, I mean, as you're developing prototypes, the prototypes that you're developing and putting in the bank or putting in the freezer, as it were, I mean, at that stage, you're not actually making any investments uh, into your event. This is all no. pre-event planning. It's all, all it is is a narrative. Yeah. Okay. So Dylan, what you're absolutely correct. What all you're doing is spending the time of um, a, a, a design team, right? This is not a solo sport. You always have to have a group of people that do this with diverse thinking together, right? So let's pretend seven people spend two or three days designing an event that's going to happen next year, March. Um, and a number of prototypes land on the table, as well as those stakeholder validation stories from the different stakeholders. Um, and a bunch of ideas that we lock up in something we call an idea quarantine. And this was a concept that we started using seven years ago. So it's not a, it's not the new quarantine that we all know, but it's the, it's the old place where you lock up ideas until you're ready to assess them. Right? The quarantine originally comes from uh, Venice, I used to think, but yesterday I got corrected by someone that said it was actually Dubrovnik, but it was owned by Venice at the time. In the plague, when people had to stay for on the boats for 40 days, 40, 40, that is 40 days on the boat to make sure that they weren't sick before they could enter the, the city. So we put any ideas that people have around events into the quarantine long enough for us to formulate the event delta, our, our rubric of is this a good or a bad idea? And then we unlock the quarantine to assess the ideas when we start prototyping in the third phase. The interesting thing about the ideas by that time is that nobody remembers who came up with the idea. 
which is probably one of the most important things, right? Because if your CEO or your chairman of the board comes up with the idea, a lot of people tend to think it's a good idea. That's not exactly true. The other thing that happens is that you can look at the ideas at face value once you unlock the quarantine because you're ready to look through the lens of that delta. Does it change the behavior and desired direction of change? Does it deliver this change? Yes or no? How good is it? How bad is it? Drop it to the side, keep it on the, keep it on the prototype arena. Right? This is how people work with it. And that's why the actual prototyping goes super fast. In our design process, we spend 90% of our time in analyzing the stakes and exploring the problem and only 10% in prototyping. So if you've done the analysis and the situation changes, you can just re-prototype because it's super fast. Most prototype cycles take no longer than 17 minutes with a five minute break. So in less than 45 minutes, you can create two sets of new prototypes, providing you have enough people to think diversely enough of coming up with them. And the prototyping usually happens in teams of two, which is also interesting. So Prototyping doesn't happen by a team of seven, because then it becomes like a negotiation, right? When we prototype, it's two people bouncing off each other. They cannot opt out of the conversation, but they come up with something that they think is super cool. Subsequently, it gets fired down by the other three groups of people that also came up with ideas. And out of that long list, you come up with the best ones. And those conversations are the ones that you need to have to have the best possible event designs on the table by the time you present it back to the event owner. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's really good insight. But it sounds definitely like this is this is very much a framework for larger event planning teams to use and maybe not for like the office manager who's being charged with the holiday party. <laughs> well, I wanted to wanted to ask a question about that. Um, you know, I think you made a great point, Dylan, in terms of if the event's working, what's the impetus to change it? Now, I just wanted to check with Rudy. What is your experience? Like, is it only people who are unhappy with their events that want to use this kind of methodology? Or do you get people that kind of aren't necessarily wanting to change? I guess that would only really work if you, if they're part of a larger team and somebody says, like, we need to do something new here. Uh, but do you get people that are kind of like, I don't want to change. I think my design is great. Why would I want to change it? And, and does it help kind of decode that and maybe find some, some gaps in that thinking? Yeah. And I think that's, that's um, we didn't have the answer to that question. And I, I still think we don't. Uh, we do have a set of experiences over the last seven years that we can rely on, right? And what, what we notice is that most event owners are faced with that need of change and are frustrated by understanding how to implement that with their events, right? That's one thing that we see. Um, we also see people that are extremely successful with their event or were very successful with their event but they didn't necessarily know what they were doing right, which is a good problem to have, but it's also pretty scary if you're responsible for that, right? So if something works really well, but you don't know what you're doing well, that's another way of like wanting to decode or you know trace the DNA of what you're doing in order to know what you're then needing to replicate. Or if you look at it in the future, you know what you did then and you know what you're doing differently today. So one of the most common exercises, we just did one yesterday, with an organization here in Basel, um, the DIA. They've been doing an event for 33 years. It's very successful. Um, but just looking back at 33 years of events and figuring out what were the highlights, lowlights, what do we remember from this event is a super powerful mechanism to spark the thinking of the team as to what happened in the past. 
because no event is consistently perfect all the time or no event is consistently bad all the time. What happens is the context changes, right? Your event might be perfect. All of a sudden you get a change of a CEO and a new CEO comes in and says, what's that budget line item that says dollars, right? Um, what would happen if we stopped doing that? Because that's always an option. That's always a prototype that's on the table. If you then cannot articulate what behavior will not get changed if you stop doing that event, then you're still lost for words. And however good your event team is or however fantastic the results were, if you cannot articulate the opposite truth of stopping the event and what it won't deliver if you don't do it, you have no arguments at the seat table, right? So you, So... For all those people that want to have a seat at the C table, give up, forget about it. It's useless. You don't want a seat at the C table. What you want is to be a trusted advisor to the people at the C table so that when the rubber hits the road or when they have a change in their head and they need to figure out how to do that, then they ask you and your team to step forward and to listen to their challenge and to then design potential solutions as to how you could crack that challenge. So those are two very different concepts of the way that we think events create value and the way we want to be seen as people in the events industry. Um, we tend to, you know, as we progress the thinking and the experience in this, what you want to be is a trusted advisor to those people. Look at them at eye level, be respected for what you do. And when they have a big chunk of change that they need to design for and they don't know how to do it or how to get it across, that's when they tap you on the shoulder and ask your team to come in, not just you. I think that's really interesting in a sense of you sort of using uh, this to protect your budget as well, saying, I need to make sure that I can prove that the money we're spending on hospitality, the money that we're spending on, uh, you know, an incentive program or the money that we're spending on anything makes sense. And if you can prove by the design or kind of uh, at least illustrate that with the design, then you, you stand a better chance of protecting that budget. Uh, yeah, that sounds very defensive, Miguel. I, I, I like to think more of the offensive thing, right? So, <laughs> um, I mean, if, if you're well, in defense you, mode, it's too late already, usually. Uh, if you're at the seat table points. with a defense mechanism, you're in trouble, right? Yeah, but you raised the great point about... because if you're, if you're sitting at the seat table and you get asked about a specific budget line item, it's not always easy to explain why that's worth what it is, right? And, and you've got to... No, like... but, but imagine that you then hold up a narrative, right? Or hold up a story, or you have the story in your head, better yet, which is what most people that have done the design, they've memorized what it is and how it creates value. And they can articulate that in 60 seconds, then there is no counter argument, right? Or, and here are three other prototypes in which we could do it. And always one of the prototypes is, let's not do the event. And then you can articulate what behavior will not get changed if you don't do the event. If more people were equipped with this skill, they would not kind of live in fear and, you know, whenever the phone rings or an email comes in or a Zoom call is requested by a senior leader to talk about an event, they should be seen as a trusted advisor and not as the, as the boxing glove, you know, that needs to hit the wall, right? That's, that's, that's not your role. Mm -hmm. but what and if the... you're not in that, and if you're not in that zone of being able to understand how your events are the pivotal moments of change over time and how they create value for the organization to achieve its mission, then you haven't done your homework. Well, but to that point, one of the biggest, I mean, you mentioned that one of the impetuses for doing this is contextual change. One of the biggest contextual changes we've witnessed, certainly in the last 10 years, has been the pandemic, the move to virtual, it being an unfamiliar format with an uncertain ROI. 
So in a context where you're trying to create your ability to articulate the value of, of an event based on an unproven format, based on an unfamiliar format, um, I mean, you can do your homework, but if there's no, if there haven't been many litmus tests and there hasn't been a lot in the way of paradigms to follow or to, to measure against, in some ways you're, you're, you're prototyping based on a lack of precedence. So how, I'm, I'm really curious as to how uh, virtual events have kind of changed the approach that you might take using the canvas, uh, you know, what's different about them and what is the same about them and how, how has that complicated the process? Um, it's only made it simpler, Dylan. So, um, and, and, and let me explain why. The fact that we have a lot of new restrictions if you do something only in virtual format, whether it is the fact that you cannot get together face-to-face -to -face and everybody's sitting behind a terminal and has some kind of a user interface between them and the rest of the people, just gives me a lot of clarity about how they're going to interact. Um, and virtual events or hybrid events are nothing new. They've been around for 35 years or 40 years, as long as we have the internet. Um, virtual events have been happening, and even before that, they were happening. Research has been done and testing has been done over the last decade in a lot of these formats. People get insecure because they're not familiar with what it is or because they haven't experienced it before. And this is where the homework needs to be done by those people that you know, are the so-called experts in this, is that you're not an expert if you've been doing this for five months or 14 months. You might start getting good at it if you spend 10,000 hours on it. And 10,000 hours is about you know, 14 months without sleep, right? So nobody that started in the beginning of the pandemic saying that this is it can be, can be an expert in this. It's only if you were experimenting for a long time and have been doing this over and over again and seen the changes also in the context of the tools we use, right? My iPhone is very different in 2021 than the first one that I got when we did our first um, hybrid or virtual events. Yeah, but I think most so, people are in that category of people who don't have a lot of experience with it, right? I mean, they may have in some marginal way existed beyond the pandemic, but it is, the pandemic has completely revolutionized the technology available for doing hybrid events and virtual events. So to say that there's a significant paradigm to follow, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're, we're, we're both kind of circling and landing on the same point, which is that the game now is much different than it was before the pandemic so yeah but, yeah yeah but dylan this is not only because of the technology but it's the users of the technology that have changed much quicker than before right so i think what i'm very encouraged by is the fact that you know before 2020 getting a speaker getting a participant getting someone to even on you know pay a little bit of attention to wanting to learn how to use Zoom or just, you know, be connected from geographically dis dispersed teams was a huge time suck to get people, to teach people how to do that, right? So their digital dexterity was poor at best. I think we've seen an enormous boost of the digital dexterity of the whole human population, or at least the, the one half that's connected to the internet um, and how they can use these tools. So I think this has made um, the use of these online platforms and tools and technologies, uh, that's taken away one of the biggest hurdles. The hurdles are the people. Uh, the technology is just part of the problem that it might not be perfect or it might not be perfect all the time. 
but the users that are behind the buttons are usually the ones that are the least proficient and the ones that are causing most of the problems. And so the human error in using online events or virtual events or hybrid events or we were experimenting with it yesterday. We had eight people live in a room in Basel, four people online in four different countries, different time zones. And we let them experience what four different qualities of audio do to you if you sustain it for an hour. We let them experience what it is to work with one camera points or four camera points and being able to switch it yourself or not switch it yourself. Uh, we were able to experience what it's like to use collaborative tools where we all work online and we transition you know, paper post-its very quickly into digital ones by scanning them and adding them and including them in the conversations versus just having people do it into disparate teams. So you have to practice these skills and that's the you know, digital analog dexterity that we have to practice ourselves. That, that, that's what we have to build. Practice makes perfect. Now, I think this is, this is really interesting. I wanted to make sure that we also touched on your plans and your expansion. We touched on the canvas and how it works quite a bit. Okay. Uh, but I know that you also do courses, you do several levels of courses, and you also do a course specifically for virtual events. Um, so I just wanted to, if, if you could explain how that works, you know, all the different, how the courses work and how it all comes together and how the virtual version is different, I think would be really interesting to understand. And is that, if, I, if I'm really keen to now plan great hybrid events, is that, is that what I should aim for? I think... Personally, experiencing good iterations or advanced iterations, I think, is part of the skill or part of the experience I would encourage anyone to do. Um, we've been doing the event design certificate program. No, let's go back to the beginning. So if you want to learn more about how this works uh, and the event canvas we started talking about, um, you can download that under eventcanvas.org under Creative Commons. You can go and use it and share it with your teams. Again, it's in 16 languages and some instructions follow once you download it, including the first 100 pages of the Event Design Handbook, which is a book that we published in 2016. Um, and that book, um, the first 100 pages kind of explain the workings of the canvas and the next 100 pages kind of give a lot of examples and how it's used in application. For that, you would need to get the book. That book is about the language of event design and the process of event design. Now, not all people get geeky about process, but if you do get geeky about process, the event design certificate program is made in, it's now in five levels. Level one is kind of a one day program. Level two is two days. Level three is three days plus six months. And the third level allows you to become a certified event designer. And it's actually where you, every participant brings a design project. We select one of them. And during the three days, we crack that design challenge. And then people get six months they get coached to actually go back to their own teams and apply the methodology, um, which is all written up in a facilitation kit and things that they get as part of the course. Uh, and they use tools like Mural and Zoom, obviously, and collaborative tools to go and design with their teams and then submit it back for peer review. If that's done successfully, they become a certified event designer. Then you master the process of facilitating a group of people through design. After that level, we have something called CED Plus, which is for people that want to become really proficient online facilitators of event design. And we have an EDC Mastermind, which is a group of certified event designers who are obsessed about the conversations around event design. And in the last year, we wrote a book called Design to Change. It's our second book that uh, Rolf Risse and Dennis Lauer and myself wrote uh, with the help of 
um, Paul Wilkins, uh, where we really focus on the conversations you have around event design. Right, so that book opens with a one-liner that says, a good conversation can shift the direction, direction of change forever. Would you leave it to chance? Right, so it's really about how to have the conversation with people that are outcome-driven and don't care about process or understanding the difference between the two. Because that's one of the common mistakes that we've seen is that we've really taught people how to be really good at the process and design really good events, but then they didn't know how to address that in their organizations. And that's the reason why we took the COVID period to, wrote, to write this book. So we have a good souvenir from a very exceptional period in time. So we hope that's time well invested. Um, we validated that with our masterminds. Uh, it also has an audiobook that Anthony Vade um, created for us. Uh, it has an augmented reality layer and it comes with an ebook as well and an online platform. So it's kind of like a omni-channel conversation that happens, including a podcast series. So it's, it's yeah. an ecosystem. It's not just a it's book. It's an right? ecosystem. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's great. I mean, you you have a canvas that you took a long time to develop. You offer that for free, uh, Creative Commons license. So anybody who's interested in exploring this topic can go and and explore that and try to use it themselves and figure it out for themselves and you give them a, a sort of level of instructions then you have your multiple levels of training right uh, which yeah. sort of conclude with this kind of higher end and, and more kind of developed training and now you have a second book that's really more about the conversation yeah. what's next i mean um oh there's one very important one i forgot miguel um yeah. before we get to the what's next Four or five years ago, we launched a pilot program to bring this to university students across the globe. It's called the EDC Event Design Certificate Program for Young Professionals. And amazingly enough, in the last two years, that program has exploded. It's now at 18 different universities across the globe. And that's, that's where uh, faculty members can become certified event designers. And then we have a full learning management system um, for the students to learn how to use this and then collaborate on projects themselves. And I'm very excited about that because the new generation coming in takes design thinking very naturally. They know how to collaborate naturally. They're not biased by all of the difficulties that we might know about if you've been in the industry for a while. They have a fresh brain to look at event design. And what comes out of that pipeline is extremely exciting. That's super cool. And if anybody in the universities are interested in that, they can look up the EDC Young Professionals Program. Um, What's next? That's your question. Uh, our, well, our, I wanted to also is, touch on, yeah. on, on kind of, I, I'm sure when you started all this, you didn't have all this planned, right? You started this, like, did you just start off by wanting to create this Creative Commons um, canvas or was there a bigger plan to start it off? It was just a side it? project born out of frustration with mediocre events. Okay. And that's taken over in our lives. And there's 14 of us that are doing this in different countries. Um, and it's very exciting because we're we're basically equipping others to be able to do what what we've created, right? And and teaching others how to do that, and as a result, create much better events. So some people might not know that the upcoming Wikimania event in twenty twenty one, you know, is designed by the Wikimedia Foundation and its volunteers to do just that, right? Or that the team at the International Olympic Committee uses this as their default way of doing events, or that the United Nations or people at Bayer or wherever the people are that are trained, the people that experience those events tell us that the events are different, better. Um, there's something different about them. Some people have no idea that it was designed using the canvas. 
So and is I your part of your so future plans to bring that into the public? Is that is that part of the, what you'd like to do going forward? To make it obvious that the event design well, can Well, I think um, the fact that it's under Creative Commons makes it accessible to anyone and everyone, right? So I think that's that's one point. Um, whether people can use it effectively uh, really depends on the person. Some people read the book and can design an event perfectly with the questions that are on the canvas. And others say, well, I want to really learn the nitty gritty and I want to go through level one, two, three, or maybe become a mastermind because geeking out with this community about event design is what I thrive on. This is what I really like to do. Um, any which way uh, doesn't matter to us. It, it started as a side project. And like I said, it's taken over our lives and it's become like our core business. Um, we never started this to for it to become a business. It was just a happy accident. So it's not a startup by design in the sense of uh, kind of it was built to, to crack a problem. And apparently the problem is very is very there and is is something that people really want to address. And I think that's what and because we make it accessible and understandable, mm -hmm. um, then people embrace it and adopt it um, and see the results and then get enthusiastic about it and want to do it again and again and again, which I think is it's great news it's because then time will be better designed and the way we spend our time will be better designed. Right. Yeah. My biggest, my biggest, um, my biggest uh, excitement moment is when I see other people designing using the methodology and they get really good results and we hadn't, we had nothing to do with it. <laughs> that's, that's like the ideal situation for us. Yeah. <laughs> Keep the time, <laughs> the time needed to to get everybody up to speed. It's also simple. Um, yeah. But what about your future plans? I mean, do you have a clear picture of where where you're going next that you can share? Well, as you can imagine, we draw out our future regularly, right? Because if you can picture it, you know where it's headed. Um, so yes, we have you know that very clear two prong approach to. Uh, making sure that we keep training the language and equipping people with the process to design good events and become certified event designers and become very proficient. But the big new thing is on designtochange.online. You can also see that, which is the online platform for the new book, um, which is all about design to change and elevating your abilities to look and act beyond the now. So I think it's it's the conversation is um, um, is more about horizons of change and how to create pivotal moments over time. Events are never the purpose, right? They're just part of a process. Um, when I was standing on top of the mountain last week playing Alphorn with my dad, I had an epiphany when I came back, which is, um, I just tweeted about it. It's, um, you know, if you, if, you, if you change the frame, you can frame the change. And people don't like change, right? But if you change the frame of whether, the, you know, zoom in, zoom out factor or whatever the perspective is or whatever it might be, but if you can change the frame, you can frame the change. And I think what people really crave is the ability to frame the change. Because they, if they don't have a grip on something, they feel uncomfortable and they feel fearful. And a lot of us have experienced that over the last 14 months. So taking a step back and being able to you know, uh, change the frame and to then frame the change is what Design to Change does. And it's, it's also decoded very very specifically in how those conversations go and what the questions are to ask from various perspectives. Uh, there's diagnostics, there's all sorts of stuff that comes around, but the most important chapter in this book, I think is about having the conversation um, on this and cracking why good conversations are so hard to master. 
right? Everybody wants to have good conversations, uh, but nobody really practices them, right? It's kind of like parenthood, Miguel. You know what this is <laughs> like, right? So my kids are slightly um, older, right? So my daughter's 22 and my son is 18, but parenting, nobody goes to school for that. There's tons of books written about it, <laughs> but you find out as you go along. And I think that's the same thing with change, um, you know, designed to change. If you change the frame, you can frame the change. And only in hindsight do you understand the pivotal moments of change within the event and in between the events. So that's what we're focusing on. And we're developing new programs around that uh, because not because we want to build more programs, but because people want to learn more about how this works. So it's driven by the community and what they need. Yeah. Great. Not so much what they want. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing and wish you lots of success with that. And I just wanted to ask you one last question before we wrap up. This is what we yeah. ask everybody at the end of the podcast, and hopefully it's not catching you by surprise, but we'd love to have a recommendation from you and someone else that we should invite on the podcast. On the podcast? Yes. Another guest. Someone that you would recommend as a guest. Yeah. I would highly recommend to uh, invite uh, our friend Paul Wilkins. Uh, Paul Wilkins is our trusted advisor um, who allowed us to understand what it means to be a trusted advisor and also practice that with conversations. So if you want a good conversation in the desired direction of change, I could highly recommend Paul Wilkins. Okay. Well, I'll ask you for, for contact details. I, I have been to a few of Paul's sessions before, so I know Paul. Uh, yep. It would be fascinating to have a conversation with him. Might have to, uh, might have to read a few of his books to kind of make sure I know what I'm talking about. He's, he's you don't, a pretty You don't need guy. to read books. Just have the conversations <laughs> as you're having right now. And, and Dylan stuff. and Miguel, I really enjoyed this conversation that we had. So thank you for time well invested. Um, thank you for pleasure. sharing your your, your knowledge and your experience with everybody and uh, and hopefully everybody's listening enjoy that as well so uh, let's wrap up thank you so much and uh, see you uh, or hear you soon i guess or speak soon on the podcast <laughs> hopefully take care everybody thank you for listening to this edition of the event manager podcast please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts for the latest news and the best articles on technology and innovation in the event industry, head over to eventmb.com. 